Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Today, uh, we're going to continue the sermon series that we've been in for five weeks now. This is week five on one of our core vision targets as a church. Um, and it's, it's a vision target that we are in the process of raising hopefully $2 million towards. Uh, here's the target. We will continue to build our reputation as the Love the Ville Church through our social concern. That's what we're about here. We want people to say of us in this community that no one, no one loves the poor and the marginalized of this city quite like Northeast. Just look at the stuff they do like that. Love the Ville Christmas party, right? Those people are everywhere. They pour out love extravagantly. We want that as our reputation, and I believe we're well on our way. Now, quick review f- for you. Um, at the beginning of this series and throughout this series, we've laid a couple of core theological foundation blocks that I've been building our Love the Ville reputation on top of. And I want to review them right now uh, because today we're going to bring all of these theological themes to a culmination in the Christmas story uh, when we get to our passage. So uh, the Bible sums up our social concern, if you will, as a church, this reputation we're after, uh, with a Hebrew word, uh, shalom. Shalom. Everybody give that a try. Say shalom. Shalom. Yeah, 250 times in the Old Testament, and shalom is usually translated over in English as uh, peace or uh, peace and prosperity, welfare, something like that. Now, shalom is more than just peace, though, to be clear. For a lot of us, when we think of peace, we think of the absence of tension, That's not shalom. It's more than that. Shalom isn't just the absence of tension. It's the presence of human flourishing, the presence of something more, if you will. Have you ever uh, experienced, you ever experienced just like that deep longing in your heart that we were made for something more? We all do throughout life. I believe that is a hunger God's put in our heart for shalom. You ever thought to yourself, geez, my family should not be this broken or the school system should be better or the government should be better than this or the economy should, should be better. Like we shouldn't be so at each other's throats all the time. Like there should be more accord, more harmony. Shouldn't be so many people crushed in our community and around the country. Ever experienced that? That is, I believe God put that hunger in our hearts for shalom. Shalom is our home, if you will. And the more we move our community towards shalom, the more at home we'll feel. When we're doing acts that nurture and cultivate shalom, the more at home in our own skin we'll feel. But when we're not, or when our community's moving away from it, it can be disorienting, depressing even. Now, uh, if shalom is what we're after, y'all, then justice, according to scripture, justice is what we must be about because justice is how we bring about shalom. Justice is another word all over the Bible. It is central to the character of God. We serve a God who is just. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but everybody's got an opinion on justice. 
these days. Just bring it up at lunch this, this week at work. See if you get reported to HR, right? Like it's just, it's a lot of fun, right? Now, what I love about scripture though, is that when it talks about justice, it has such a countercultural and more nuanced approach than our culture. For you Bible nerds in the room, uh, the Old Testament uses two main Hebrew words for justice. Uh, the Hebrew word mishpat and sedaka. Mishpat and sedaka. Let's talk about both real quick. First, mishpat. Uh, everybody give that one a try. Say mishpat. Good job. It's kind of, kind of fun to say, right? A mishpat occurs around 200 times in the scripture. It's kind of a lot. And the most popular usage uh, is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. One of the three things the Lord requires of us. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, that's mishpat, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, okay, you got justice here, you got sedekah over here, mishpat over here. If you're looking at mishpat and the lexical range that it's used um, in, in the Old Testament, there's two main ways that mishpat is used. First, it's used to talk about, you know, something that we might call like fair law or uh, social order. Perfect example of this is Leviticus 24, 22. Uh, the, the scriptures say you shall have one law or mishpat. Literally the English translator took mishpat and translated over instead of justice to one law. You shall have one law, mishpat, for the alien and for the citizen. So here in this context, justice just, it means fair law, right? Fair law and a fair application of it. Now the second use of the term mishpat means something like uh, um, rights and dignity, particularly to the marginalized and to the poor. Zechariah chapter seven, verse nine, it says, thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice, mishpat, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the stranger, or the poor. Now it's fascinating here. The word mishpat is, is applied to all sorts of different people throughout the Old Testament, but none more so than this quartet of the vulnerable. That the Bible always is taught, like the, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, if you will. The scripture constantly talks about how we should give justice to them. And the reason why is that in the Bible times, Bible cultures, these were the people that were typically withheld the dignity that they deserved as image bearers of God. The Bible says that's not okay. So see how, how this works? Mishpat, mishpat. It's basically just giving others what they deserve. And sometimes a criminal deserves to face a fair law and its consequences, not only for their reformation, but also for the safety of society. And also sometimes the poor deserve justice. They deserve to get what they deserve and that is dignity, attention, and care. Now that's one word. Here's the other word. Bible nerds, you, you with me here today? Okay, so I'm, I'm seeing a lot of glazed over eyes, okay? Elbow your husband, um, or just pretend like you're taking notes. It's encouraging to me, just pretend. Just nod your head every once in a while. Uh, all right, so here's the second word, uh, sedaka. sedaka. Everybody try that one, say sedaka. <laughs> Let's try that out again, uh, sedaka. sedaka. It's, a good, it's a good effort, Kentucky, okay? Um, <laughs> Now, sedaka, it, it means something like uh, reconciled and right relationships with both God and others. Understand, the Bible is concerned with right relationship vertically and horizontally. It goes both ways there. 
Now, the interesting thing about tzedakah, though, is that it's often translated in, uh, in English as the English word righteousness. Righteousness. And I like it, but I also don't like it because for a lot of us, here's why I don't like it. A lot of us, when we think of righteousness, we think of personal morality. You know, that person prays a lot and they don't drink or cuss or, you know, they're sexually moral and they know God's word, a righteous man, right? Like that's what we think of. And that's not what Sedekah is after here. It's actually after right relationships. How generous are you? How kind are you? How honest are you with the people, the individuals God has put in your life? That's the measurement of your Sedekah. You see, and I actually love the layer that this adds to the biblical picture of justice because now justice isn't just about like rights and law. It isn't just political, if you will, it's personal. It's personal. And together, these two terms give us a definition for justice that is so compelling. What a compelling vision this is. Christians, we should not be off put by or afraid of the justice conversation because look at what we have. What a vision. Here's your summary of, of everything that I just said. Uh, justice or mishpat and tzedakah. It gives us a, a, just a beautiful vision of what the Bible is after. It's after both rights and relationships, both law and love, both fairness and friendship. Interestingly, these two words are actually tied together, mishpat and tzedakah, over three dozen times in the scripture. Amazing, right? Oftentimes, English translators will translate them over, or scholars will translate them over as the word social justice, because justice is undeniably social. It involves individual relationships. It involves communal accord with your neighbors. This is the biblical vision of justice. And it is the key to establishing shalom, one of the core longings of our heart. Now, I, I wanna double down real quick on this vision of justice because I, I, I just think this is so much more robust and compelling than our culture's definition of justice and how our culture talks about it. It's, it's, just, it's just fuller. It's just better. It refuses to be pigeonholed into the political binaries of the left and the right when they talk about justice. Did you know that the Bible actually teaches that there are three main causes for poverty and injustice? Three, three main. Uh, okay, so again, Bible nerds, this is your moment. First, uh, systemic and institutional oppression. Bible names that as a cause of poverty, cause of injustice. It gives examples like uh, when the judicial system is weighted in favor of the powerful, that is injustice and it causes poverty. Loans with excessive interest, unjustly low wages, burdensome tax systems, uh, corrupt and violent law enforcement, ethnic tribal prejudice. All these things are systemically baked in oftentimes to human society and they can cause poverty. The injustice therein can just wreak havoc on people's lives. It's the Bible. Look up those verses for, you, for yourself. Now, those are just a few examples, by the way of the systemic justice that the Bible names and calls out. And let's be honest, if that was the only thing that the Bible acknowledged as a cause of poverty and injustice, then we'd have to say that the left has got it right because they relentlessly preach that the root cause of poverty is unjust social forces beyond the control of the poor. The poor are 
victims, if you will. That's why politicians on the left, by the way, quote Bible verses, because they're, they're in there. Only problem is, is that there's just a lot more to the conversation than that. Which brings us to our second cause of poverty and injustice. According to the Bible, personal moral failure leads to poverty. Personal moral failure. The Bible calls out sloth. It calls out the lack of self-discipline. It calls out dishonesty, substance abuse, marital unfaithfulness, among other things. And it says this leads to poverty. And again, this sounds very right, doesn't it? Conservative politicians love to throw shade on the breakdown of the family unit, the lack of character, alcoholism, drug abuse, and other nefarious activities and destructive habits that are often found among the poor. Bible names these. And again, if this was all the Bible named, then we'd have to say that the right got it right, right? And this is why I get so frustrated with the political conversation. Have you ever noticed that I get a little frustrated with the political conversation? Um, Okay, you're laughing, good. Um, This is why I am always relentlessly calling us, summoning this church to have a better conversation and to, to see God's third way, if you will, that rises above the left and rises above the right. Because people are constantly co-opting the Bible for their political ends. They selectively quote Bible verses that support their side. They ignore the Bible verses that might support the other side. No one wants to acknowledge that scripture is having a much bigger conversation than we are. Which leads us to the third cause of poverty. This is just kind of the cherry on top for you. Natural disasters. Bible cites famine, flood, plague. All these things can can send people into to situations of poverty. Or if you're already in poverty and a natural disaster hits, it can just be totally devastating. Okay, so uh, systemic and institutional oppression, uh, personal moral failure, natural disasters. As you can see, the Bible acknowledges that what locks people into poverty is complex. This is why we can't fit the Bible's approach to justice and shalom into like a liberal or conservative model. It's just too brawny for our artificial mindset. It takes the best of both, eats the meat, then spits out the bones. It acknowledges that shalom can't be established by just personal initiative alone or just changing the tax structure or just legislating family values or just reparations, just voter reforms. In fact, I think the Bible points to the fact that it takes comprehensive array of public, private, and spiritual measures. No one factor is sufficient. We need more government programs. No, we need better policy. No, we need more personal responsibility. No, we just need private charity. In fact, the Bible says, actually, we need all that and so much more because we need the wisdom to figure out when and how to dispense those things, and we need Jesus on top of that. Now, history lesson, you know, Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Political stuff over. I I want you to hold all that in your mind for for a moment because we're gonna come back to it at the very end. Uh, Because on that note, I wanna read a classic Christmas prophecy. And I wanna do a deep historical dive underneath it. And the reason why is because most people are familiar with this prophecy. Some of you can quote it because you memorized it in childhood. But most people never realized that this famous passage of the prophet Isaiah actually contends that the divine horizon of Jesus' kingdom 
is shalom. It's mishpat. It's tzedakah. If King Jesus is ruling in your heart, in your family, in your land, that's what you'll see. According to Isaiah, let's read. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. The prophet says, uh, but there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder for the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. Praise God. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. The government rests upon his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. His government shall grow continually, and there shall be endless shalom for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with mishpat and with Sedakah from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Now you recognize the last two verses there, six and seven, right? Many of you, many, many of you probably do. It's a classic Christmas prophecy about baby Jesus and the government that he will bring. Now, in my mind, it seems to me in this cultural moment that we are living in a, a great disillusionment with leadership and government. Like, we just don't, just don't trust, just don't trust them anymore, right? Like, we can't trust the major institutions, can't trust big business, can't trust the media, the other world superpowers, can't trust our own elected leaders. Like, who can we trust? That's the vibe. And I don't think, by the way, that this environment and feeling of distrust that we have is invalid. Leadership has earned that. But uh, what's disappointing to me is how I see, <laughs> how I see Christians just getting so worked up over it. Like people are becoming mentally ill because of this. They're disowning their family. They're responding with violent language or violent actions, or they're just going like full-blown QAnon, crazy. I got another letter this week. Um, interesting, it was a letter, not an email. Uh, 
predicting the end, end times. And of course, Iran and Russia were involved. And, um, you know, Iran has four letters in it. Russia has six letters in it. And Biden has five. You see who will bring it together, right? Now, of course, President Trump is the savior though, because the Bible says that when the Trump sounds, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And so it's just crazy. It's crazy. Now I get it. Like not all of us are like full-blown lizard people. I get it. Like just, but. But most of us are kind of scared. We're kind of scared. And that fear can lead to paralysis and that paralysis just leads us to grasping for some sort of political savior that can set it all right in just a four-year term or some sort of silver bullet, some sort of grand utopian cause that if we could just get this one cause, if we could just get that pushed through, then it'll fix it all. And in my humble opinion, when Christians go there, that's a sign to me of misplaced Now, when Isaiah writes this passage, the people of the southern kingdom find themselves here. Historians call this era the Assyrian period. It's because the Assyrians rise up as one of the world's superpowers of the time, and they go on quite a destructive little tour conquering lands, including the northern part of Israel. And uh, as the southern kingdom witnessed this happening, they, they witnessed the siege of, those, of the ten tribes to the north, uh, they start to realize that we're next. We're in a whole lot of trouble here. Right? Uh, only problem is rather than turning to God and asking for his protection and his guidance, they scramble to make political alliances. They start playing nice with Assyria or later on they, they lock arms with Egypt and with Babylon. Outside of a few good moments with King Hezekiah, uh, it was just one big case of misplaced hope. So Isaiah drops the hammer on him. Like, he, read Isaiah 1. If you want to see him drop the hammer about idolatry and injustice, Isaiah drops the hammer. He basically predicts the eventual siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which will happen about 140 years later. But... What I love about Isaiah is in the midst of this judgment, he reminds people that even after defeat, God will restore. God will, will prevail. His Messiah will come. Let's start in Isaiah 9.1 and just take this verse by verse here. Isaiah says, there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. Um, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Hold those. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Now, I underlined those two land masses for you because if you understand the geography here, uh, what you'll see is that Zebulun and Naphtali um, are two of the most northern and coastal uh, areas in the region. You can throw the map up there and check it out. 
Naphtali's, they're, they're kind of in the reddish orange. Zebulun is the green with the diagonal stripes. This little strip of land here was lush agricultural area. It was also the major trade route from Mesopotamia to Egypt. So for, um, for an army that comes conquering from the east or the north, this is where the siege begins. This is where you start. Which means that they, Zebulun and Naphtali, they, more than any other place, bore the full weight of the Assyrian army. Which makes it all the more glorious that Isaiah says, when God's hope breaks through, it's here in the place of greatest devastation that the light will shine first. Now question for you, uh, where does Jesus grow up? Where does uh, Jesus do a pretty big chunk of his ministry? Where does he call home? It's there in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, 700 years later. Let's start with Luke. Did you know that in Luke's Christmas story, uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, sings a song. And that song's a little verse about Jesus. And when he sings about Jesus, he ties Jesus to Isaiah chapter nine. Look at Luke 178. Zechariah says, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. Isaiah 9, two, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, Luke's kind of like covert here because it's like hidden into a song that Zechariah is singing, but Matthew is much more explicit tying Jesus to Isaiah 9. Matthew chapter four, verse 13, Matthew says, Jesus left Nazareth, made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Oh, and in case you were wondering why, it was so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Amazing. So if anybody ever wonders why Christians so vigorously tie Isaiah 9 to Jesus, it's because the gospels do. Now, Isaiah goes on to say in verses three through five, that when the light breaks in, it will lead to rejoicing, freedom, and victory. Check this out. Verse three says, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Hold that. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel. For the fire. Now, there is a lot here. Wish we had time to cover it all. Um, but one bit I highlighted for you is the language that Isaiah uses to describe the victory that's won here. Did you notice, notice what he said? He says it's as, uh, he says it will be as on the day of Midian. As on the day of Midian. Now, does anybody know what he's referring to when he's talking about Midian? This is actually uh, referring to Judges 6 through 8, where the judge, Gideon, fights the Midianites and wins. 
Now, anybody here remember much about Gideon? It's actually a pretty fascinating story. It's one of those kind of fun Bible stories to read. Um, okay, so here's how I would describe, this is my opinion. You can have your own opinion. This is my opinion, all right? Um, in my opinion, if I had to describe Gideon for you in a phrase, it would be this, the worst. He is not a mighty warrior as he is, in my opinion. He, he's not really a man of all that extraordinary faith, but God uses him. Okay, so let's tell you Gideon's story here. Uh, first, angel comes to him and he says, Gideon, mighty warrior, God has chosen you to go fight the Midianites and win. To which Gideon is like, uh, but how do I know it's you, God? To which I'm like, well, first an angel's talking to you. Pretty good indicator, Gideon. But um, the angel's like, okay, take that. You see that meat right there? I'm not sure why Gideon had meat around. He's like, see that meat right there? Put it on a rock and watch this. And well done. Stay. Like fire comes from heaven, lights it up. So then the angel, you know, gives, gives him from, from God very clear instructions to go and, uh, and to... Uh, to tear down all the Asherah poles and all the altars to Baal that are around the land. Says, Go do it. So to Gideon's credit, he does it <clears throat> at night. <laughs> and you know why he does it at night? The Bible tells us it's because he was afraid. He's afraid. The next day when everybody wakes up and sees all the poles torn down, the altars torn, they're, they're like, who did this? Who? It was Gideon, right? And they go to Gideon's house and guess what? Gideon stays in and hides. It's his dad who has to come out and he's like, back off my boy, all right? Back off, let Baal take care of him if it's really all that bad. But Gideon, is, he's afraid to own the fact that he was obedient to God. Now, because he tore down the idols though, an army begins to form around him. And, uh, and he prepares to battle Midian. But before he does, he has this really panicky conversation with God. He's, you know, oh God, I just need a sign. Just to make sure that it's, this is real, this is right. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. And I feel like he's just winging it because where do you, why do you ask for this sign? He's like, oh, I'm gonna take this fleece right here. And tonight I want you to make it what does he do first, dry? I want you to make it dry while the ground around it's wet. That's what I want you to do, God. <laughs> right, and he's gotta be walking away thinking, yes, it's never gonna happen, except that it does. So you know what Gideon does next? No, he does not go to battle after that. Uh, next day, oh God. One more sign. See the fleece? Do the opposite tonight. And God does. Now imagine at this point, God's just kind of like, done with the signs thing, buddy. All right, that was the last one. You're annoying me, my turn. Okay, I'm gonna give you something to be nervous about because this is what's about to happen. You're gonna go to battle with the army of Midian armed with, I know God, armed with a massive army and you know, Black Hawk helicopters sent back from the 21st century. No, God says, no, actually no. I'm gonna whittle your army down from 22,000 to 300 and you guys get to go with pots and trumpets. <laughs> now again, to Gideon's credit, he goes, they smash the pots, they blow the trumpets and then God does the work. 
he sends the enemy army into a frenzy. They start like slaying each other. Um, and Gideon's like, I'm the man. He walks back and tells him, I'm the man. What's that? Gideon, Gideon, Gideon. Don't tell your girl about me. I mean, like he's just, you know. But I love this. This is a perfect picture for Isaiah to choose. Like this perfect prophetic picture here. Because, because Isaiah shows us how God gets all his work done. Through mustard seed-like almost faithless people. He claims victory. He does basically all the work himself. Sound like Jesus and the disciples who run, by the way. Sound like the Holy Spirit and the church. Yeah. Now, this brings us to the Christmas prophecy because you know how God's gonna do it this time? It ain't trumpets and torches and pots. It's not an army of 300. It's something even more unlikely than that. This time, God's gonna do it with a baby. Isaiah 9, 6, a child has been born for us. A son given to us. The government rests on his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. And his government shall grow continually. Now this is some baby. Isn't it? Hmm. His government shall grow continually. That tracks. Because here we are, 2,000 years later, in Kentucky, worshiping Jesus. Last time I checked, there ain't nobody gathering together in small communities in Paducah or Owensboro to remember Tiglath Pileser III, the Assyrian king. Hey, I'm just here for the Tiglath Pileser the Third Society, you know? Just wanna experience his presence, walk in his way, you know? Go tell it on the mountain that Tiglath Pileser the Third is. Like it's just, it's, just, it's a mouthful. That's probably why. It's just a mouthful. Do you know that scholars actually uh, abbreviated his name in the ancient Near Eastern like, te- like history books to just TP3? It was like, TP, I'm done saying Tiglath. Okay, sorry. I'm just done with saying it though. So. So I was listening to John Tyson preach on this once and he pointed out that uh, every uh, epoch of human history has sought after righteous forms of governance only to be disappointed that they can't deal with the brokenness in our world. Every form of government falls short in some way. Uh, First, the pharaohs enslaved Egypt. Then the Assyrians introduced all sorts of new levels of pain and hardship as they conquer. Uh, Then the Greeks, after Alexander the Great dies, they break up the kingdom and they start fighting with each other in selfish ambition. Then at the, well, really the only thing the Roman Empire ends up uh, doing is propping up the powerful, crushing the poor in the name of peace. So the barbarian hordes sweep in, they rot from the inside out. Then after that, the, the feudal system takes over and the feudal system is only good as the kings and the lords in charge, which means it's never that good. Uh, Oh, then the American revolution comes to break us away from monarchy and establish a government of the people, by the people, for the people. But the government is far from perfect because of the sinful hearts of the people, by the people, for the people. Winston Churchill, (laughs) uh, he once said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. (laughs) 
So while I believe that the form of government we have is about the best history has ever seen, we're still not in great shape. Oh, then of course, communism comes along. You know, everybody today is like, communism, it's for the working class. We should do it. But don't have historical amnesia. We did a little experiment in the, you know, in communism in the 20th century. I don't know, it just led to a brutal set of regimes that exterminated 100 million people. No big deal, right? So look, all that to say, there is this longing in the human heart for a kingdom, for a king, to which Isaiah says a child will be born for us. And what does he say are the hallmarks of the kingdom? Let's read it again, Isaiah 9, 7. There shall be endless shalom for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with mishpat and with tzedakah from this time onward and forevermore. Shalom, mishpat, tzedakah, peace, justice, righteousness. These are the hallmarks of the forever Christmas kingdom of King Jesus. So what do you think the hallmarks of his church should be? Now, for those of you who need a bit more of a down-to-earth vision of what this looks like this side of heaven, I want to introduce you to one of our partners today, Miss Cheryl Fox. Cheryl, can you come on up? And, I mean, you know, tomorrow, Leslie, I'm gonna ask y'all to come up with her. Come on up to the stage. Give, give Cheryl a round of applause. Yes. Our outreach team met Cheryl back in 2019 um, because all of our partners in West Louisville were talking about her. They're talking about this amazing uh, lady. They're talking about this mother-daughter duo, basically, that owned a restaurant called Big Mama's Soul Food Kitchen. And people were saying that this place served real soul food, like the Jesus kind, if you get what I'm saying. During the week, they ran a restaurant on weekends, they would take the proceeds from the restaurant and their own personal money, and they would donate it to the hungry. They were feeding about 100 people on the streets week in and week out. More than once, we got the honor of donating our time and money as a church to these ladies. What I love about it, it's a grassroots ministry. Grassroots. See a need, meet a need in my neighborhood. That's Love the Ville. Now, the restaurant uh, closed last year because Cheryl's mom retired, but the ministry didn't. Cheryl, just two months ago, um, she reminded us at 9 a.m. two months ago, got her 501c3 status approved. Praise God. And so uh, she continues to spend her free time serving soul food on the streets of the West End. And she will deliver door to door if she has to, to make sure people eat. We are so proud and inspired I'm just even more inspired after meeting you, ma'am. What an honor it is to call you sister. Now, not only has our team been supporting Cheryl's ministry, but we also uh, decided in 2020 to begin investing thousands of dollars into housing, home ownership in our city. It's part of our plan for development, right? We talked about relief and development last week. It's development, it's development work. I mean, if you don't know about the generational chains that, that home ownership can break, look it up. 
And so we knew early on that Cheryl would be a perfect candidate for this. So after about 18 months of working with the Park Federal Credit Union and also Seth Owen, uh, one of our stakeholders here, did Seth make it this service? Yeah, he was at the nine. Um, thanks to them and thanks to your generosity, church, and the grace of God, we were able to help our sister purchase her first home through down payment assistance. Um, And here's what I love is, I mean, what'd you do when you closed on your house, okay? What I love is that Seth sent us a video of Cheryl at her closing. You know what the first thing she did is? She broke out in praise and worship. Yeah. And when I heard her sing, I told Leslie, I told Tamara, I was like, she's got to sing for our church. So you've done it twice. You got one more in you? Will you sing for our church the worship hymn that you sang that day? Come on, Cheryl. Give it to us. Yes, Lord. We love you. So your answer has been so good. I'm gonna ask you again. This church admires you. We are inspired by you. Um, we are your co-laborers in this city to bring shalom. So I just, I would ask you, would you share with the people of our church just any kind of challenge or any advice you have for them this Christmas when it comes to love in the Ville? Give them a word. First, I wanna uh, thank the church, um, my real estate agent, cause she went over and beyond to give me what I, when I said I wanna stay in the community where I do my work, I wanna be in the community where I'm doing my work. So, and being a first time home, breaking the chains. I mean, he said it all in the word today, but I am just so grateful because I, I never thought I would see this day. And when the girls called me here and said, but we're thinking about doing this, it just, I just kind of pushed it to the side because I've all, not always, but it's like, I'm not going to be the one to get chosen. But God always told me everything is on his time, not my time. That's right. I'm the one that's always trying to rush. Tell him a word. But word. as I go out, I, I feed every Saturday. You know, some Saturdays I'm like, what am I going to? Because I literally have nothing to put together, but God always brings something. You know, I start thinking about the menu for Saturday on Fridays after I get off from work. So mm -hmm. it's not like sandwiches and chips. You know, I'm fixing baked chicken stuff and green beans, macaroni. Food is going to stay on their stomachs. Soul food. Cause they, Let's go. You know, if they know nothing else, they know that every Saturday when I set up anywhere in the West End, 
you know, they're going to get a home-cooked meal for them and their families. I'm seeing more kids and families, and it's heartbreaking because, uh, you know, sometimes I complain about, this is not what I want to eat, you know, but yet I have food. So, you know, I have to catch myself sometimes and be like, you know, be grateful for what I have. It might not be what I want, but I do have it. And that's one thing I, I want to challenge you all to, you know, go out of your comfort zone. And it may go to another neighborhood, donate to uh, someone, or, or reach out to a family member or a friend that you haven't, and let them know that Jesus loves them, and so do you. So let's take, you know, ourselves and set it to the side and think about somebody, well, what would they might need? Or, you know, and like I said, it could just be a phone call, a card, but it's also the main thing is just let them know that Jesus still cares about you, regardless of what situation you're going through. Keep Jesus first in everything that you do, and, and he's going to work it out. He's going to work it out. Amen, church. <laughs> On behalf of the church, uh, we just want to present a small donation to your work, to your 501c3. We're proud of you. Feed some people for Christmas. Tell them Jesus loves them. And also, uh, one more time, I'm going to ask the 11 a.m. service along with tomorrow. Would you mind uh, pray, to pray over you? Let's pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, we thank you for your son Jesus that came into this world to save us from our sins, God, to give us new life. And I just I thank you for the ways that you are working now in this church, for the generosity of this church that is at work and will continue to be at work in 2023, God. I just thank you for Cheryl, her family that is with her today and her real estate agent. Uh, God, I thank you that she's our friend, most yes, of all. And today, I praise you, God, that she unleashes your love every That's day, right. everybody, yeah. everywhere, no strings attached, God. And we give you all the praise. We love you this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So here's the way I see it, and I think Cheryl would agree with me on this. I think she sees this way too. This lady's been laying it on the line for her community, for the hungry there. Given more than she ever should, more than she ever could, because it's all God's. And she trusts that God will provide for the hungry in her neighborhood, but also for her. She got her on the west side doing that, then you got at the same time on the other side of town, us, praying that God would reveal to us people that we can get behind to bring shalom here in the ville. And he answered both of our prayers. Our great God. He just took his resources and moved them around into faithful hands. Took his resources and moved them from Cheryl to the hungry. And then he took his resources and moved them from our church to Cheryl. But it's all his. She's the answer to the prayers of the hungry, and we are the answer to hers. That's how shalom works. That's the justice of God. 
Everyone gets what they deserve. Dignity, opportunity, wholesome relationships, and a chance at life. But everyone also gets what they don't deserve. And that's the unconditional love of Jesus. This is what the King of Christmas is all about. It's a church. Let's be about it.